The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, we are so excited. We are sitting here on the campus and we are in the office of Brian McDonald. He is the assistant director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs right here at the University of California, Irvine. His research explores the impacts of processes of global change on politics and security with a focus on human, environmental, and international security. Current research projects that they have include threats and vulnerabilities of emerging network of global food systems, the environmental dimensions of peace building, and post-conflict reconstruction. Also, they do social and political impacts of the changing global security landscape. Brian McDonald is also co-editor of Global Environment Change and Human Security, which is coming out out of MIT Press. And he's written Landmines and Human Security, International Politics and War's Hidden Legacy out of SUNY Press. His work has been published in Democracy and Society, the Journal of American Planning Association, the Canadian Journal of Political Science, and so much more. And he has presented papers at annual meetings all over the world. So we are so excited to have him join us. You can learn more about him and about the whole program that they have here at UCI, which is very unique, at socialecology.uci.edu slash C-U-S-A. Brian, we're so excited to be sitting here in, in your office with you. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad to be talking with you. Well, boy, this is a place I, I never even knew existed. I th- you, you and I were talking before that it's probably more well-known outside of Irvine than it is here. So tell us, what is the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs? Um, the Center is the hub of a global network that undertakes research, education, and public service on a, on a set of activities related to an emerging set of unconventional security challenges that we face today. So what are some of those unconventional security challenges? Right, that's, that's usually the, the, the first question is, is what is the center? And the second question is well, what is unconventional security? And right. traditional security studies has tended to focus on military to military conflict or military use of nuclear weapons. So when we talk about unconventional security, we, we look at a, a, a new sets of threats or old threats operating in new ways that impact the security and safety of states, cities, individuals, and families. And these can be things like um, global terrorist and criminal networks, climate change and environmental change, uh, food security, something we see a lot in the news today. So they're things that, that impact the people's safety and then sort of filter up to impact the national security of states. Um, but are not really things you traditionally associate with security studies. Right. I noticed on the website when I looked through it, I mean, you are a whole eclectic approach of many different disciplines. So how, what discipline did you come out of? Uh, I have training in political science, and then I got a, a degree here in the School of Social Ecology at UCI, which is a, a unique multidisciplinary program. So it 
uh, does a good job of preparing you. So what does unconventional security actually mean? Uh, that is a great question. It's usually the second question you know, that, that we get when somebody asks me what the name stands for. And what we mean by unconventional security is sort of in comparison to conventional security studies programs, um, a number of which are started up after the Cold War, uh, during the Cold War to deal with the security challenges that generation faced. And those big threats were military-to-military conflict, military use of nuclear weapons. Um, and so we look at, by contrast, a set of challenges that has to do with they impact the security of countries, but also the things that impact the security of cities, states, individuals, and, and families. And some examples of these types of threats include climate environmental change, uh, global criminal and terrorist networks, uh, food insecurity, as well as things like global health and infectious disease. Right, and, and bioterrorism, that kind Absolutely. of stuff. Absolutely. We sort of fit that in with global health as the sort of natural infectious disease, but now we're increasingly having to be concerned with nefarious infectious diseases, and technology has made that a very different threat than was faced even 50 years ago um, with the big sort of biochemical weapons programs that, that countries had. The resources you need to date are, for that sort of threat are a lot, uh, a lot smaller. Right, right. So how did CUSA get started here at UCI? We opened in 1998 as the U.S. Office of a Global Research Project that was looking at the links between environmental change and security. Uh, and following the September 11th terrorist attacks and the anthrax incidents in October of 2001, there was increasing interest in the work we'd been doing. We uh, had been uh, conducting a lot of field work in parts of South Asia, places like northern Pakistan um, that weren't really subjects of concern prior to September 11th, but all of a sudden there was great interest in what was going on in nor the northwest frontier province and especially on sort of the root causes of some of the problems, not just that there were terrorist groups or drug groups based there, but why? What was it about those places that made them particularly good sites for terrorist organizations to develop in? And so we began having a a greater request for briefings and meetings and that led to a, a series of conversations with leaders on the campus and in the Orange County business community about the way that these new sorts of threats required different kinds of research that we needed to be able to bring in uh, communities to be active participants in research, business leaders, first responder leaders, uh, members of nonprofit communities, not the typical um, academic research, not the voices that have really been part of security studies, not a lot of business leaders involved in national security, but it was increasingly going to be businesses that were going to be impacted by these threats, nonprofit organizations that were operating in some of the most dangerous parts of the world. And we wanted to create a, a home for them to be able to involve them in research and do uh, UC quality research. You mentioned our, our edited volumes are published by academic presses. They undergo peer review. So we work with our practitioners um, to help them produce things that can pass university peer review standards. Um, but we also bring in some sort of non-traditional voices in, into those things. Mm -hmm. So what are the goals of the center? Well, our, the goals of the center are closely modeled on the goals of the UC system itself, which is to promote research, promote education, and provide public service to the people of California. Um, in our case, we think about research trying to meet the security demand of the 21st century to help identify the root causes and identify some of the the responses to those challenges to help to improve our readiness and resilience in the face of those threats. Uh, in terms of education, we're really looking at trying to prepare the next generation of leaders to face these challenges and, and help train the next generation of researchers. We think that you know whether it's somebody who's getting an MBA or somebody who's getting a, a law degree, they may want a different skill set. They may want some exposure to security in a different way than companies used to deal with security five or ten years ago. And then in terms of public service, we really try to promote a set of activities that enhance preparedness and readiness um, and raises people's awareness about things, promote global awareness, especially in Orange County, um, but also in beyond. We do a lot of work in D.C., a lot of work in um, international hubs like Geneva. Right. Well, we have a lot of challenges here, right here at home in Orange County and right here on the campus. And you and I were just recently talking about the issue of, of the challenges between the students with the Muslim community and the Jewish community and that's been a, a real difficult I think issue for the you know the UC campus and for a lot of the kids who've been quite scared with that what do you have to say about that well I think it, it is it is a very serious issue and something we, we do face here on the campus something the campus has gotten quite a lot of attention um, for dealing with uh, you, you know I think it's it's always a difficult 
attention for a university to try and find a balance between uh, free speech and constitutionally protected speech and helping encourage young speech, especially among young students, you know, the, the age that you're dealing with, people are excited, they're passionate, they're being exposed to new ideas, they're being exposed to charismatic professors, charismatic speakers, and especially on topics that, that generate a lot of emotion. Uh, the, the conflict in the Middle East is, is something that people have very strong feelings about. And so especially during periods, um, you know, we, we've seen this tension be, exist on the campus, but it goes, it kind of waxes and wanes depending upon larger geopolitical concerns, and especially in the last few years, especially in the last few months, there's been a great deal of uh, uptick of that tension um, with the recent violence between Israel uh, and, and the invasion of the Gaza Strip. So, I, you know, I think it is something that, as a university, we have to look for ways to help students find responsible ways to engage with these issues, responsible ways to grapple, because these are uh, very strong ethical questions. How do we resolve these conflicts? Conflicts have been going on for 50 and 60 years. It's a difficult problem, and part of what we want to help encourage is people not seeing that it's easy, that one side is absolutely good and the other side is absolutely evil. And so we've tried to um, promote a culture of discourse through some of the events that we've sponsored, to some of the speakers that we've brought on campus. We had um, Judea Pearl, Judea and Ruth Pearl, who are the, the parents of Daniel Pearl, who is the journalist from the Wall Street Journal who was killed in Pakistan shortly after the September 11th attacks. People have a deeply personal experience with these issues, but who speak very clearly about the need for tolerance, the need for respect, to, to not foment hate, to, to be able to, to, to learn and listen. Um, so we try to respond through, through bringing in some of these speakers. We brought in uh, Zainab Salbi, who's uh, an Iraqi woman who, who grew up in Saddam Hussein's palace. Her father was Saddam Hussein's pilot. Um, who can talk about her own personal experiences and the things that she's done uh, to start a, a fantastic organization. So we try to respond in our own way, but it, it's a difficult issue on campus. Um, and I know I think it's going to be a, a persistent issue. I don't see that that's an easy problem that's going to be solved. We're speaking with Dr. Brian McDonald, who is the Assistant Director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs right here on the campus of the University of California, Irvine. And his research explores the impact of global change on politics and security with a focus on the human, environmental, and international security. You know, when I was looking at the, the web, I noticed that you've done a lot of research on food security. Why don't you explain to us a little bit about that research? Sure. One of the, the focus areas that we look at is the way that, that globalization or global change, as we talk about it, is changing the security landscape that we find ourselves facing. We've been through periods of global change before, but what's different about this period of global change is that it's really speeding up and increasing in scale the, the size, the magnitude of global interactions that we deal with. So, you know, there's more stuff, more people moving around the planet, and they're moving around faster than they have before. That has a lot of impacts for a, a number of aspects of security, but one of the things that we look at is with the food system. And this is something that I think just anecdotally, just paying attention to the evening news, uh, in 2006 it was organic spinach, in 2007 it was pet food contamination, in 2008, it was uh, milk powder that was in China and, and Africa and Europe. And this year, it's been peanut butter, which is, you know, I think it, it's been such a large impact. It's it hit so many products. And it's it's something that's such a staple. It's kind of the, you know, that seems, especially with children, it's, you know, if kids are a little fussy to eat, um, just let them eat peanut butter and it's okay. Um, and we see very clearly how um, we have what we talk about as a network. It's this this one hub, this plant in Georgia that was providing this peanut butter to all these different companies that were making all these different products. And so you can look down at the, the list of, of products, it's over 100 now, and you may not have realized that everybody, uh, every all these different manufacturers at very different price points, different levels of quality, we're all using the same ingredients or ingredients from the same plant. Okay. And if that plant is, is good and, and safe and follows the procedures they're supposed to, that can be great and you can reduce costs and it has all sorts of benefits. But if there's a problem, in that plant, we see that it quickly expands in, mm -hmm. into a scope and scale that now people are being told, you know, products up to a year old, you should just throw away. And, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a big impact, and a lot of people have eaten that. I mean, already in the United States, the CD esti CDC estimates that about one in three people will get some form of foodborne illness mm -hmm. uh, every year. 
and, and so that's something that unfortunately I think people have a little bit too much personal experience with. Um, and so we, we do want to focus, uh, one area of our research looks at the, the impacts of this connectivity and some of the things we need to do to be aware of it and to rethink, you know, look at our food safety system, which developed at the end uh, of the, the 1800s and sort of grew in, in fits and starts, um, may not be optimized for the sort of threats we find ourselves facing, for the speed they can move around and the way they can spread. Right. So because we're in this very global economy and we can eat food from Denmark or we can eat food from Israel or China or whatever it is, what, what kind of recommendations do you have? The great thing about that global economy is that, that some foods, things that used to be comparatively rare, foods like coffee, have become really commonplace. Uh, and, and food has actually been an important part of globalization for centuries. Foods have spread around, uh, exciting foods were spread along uh, things like the Silk Road, which people focus on silk. But the trade there was really maintained by sort of short distance exchange of sort of exotic foods. Um, so there's some tremendous benefits to that. But of course, people need to be thinking about um, the manufacturer they get it from, the condition of food. Uh, we've recently seen the imposition of country of origin labels, which lets people make some of their own informed decisions. Um, and the main thing is just to be an aware consumer. Uh, the CDC and the FDA have launched some great ways that you can get information about food safety on your mobile phone, or uh, they've put up, they have their own MySpace pages now that you can go to. So we are seeing that these agencies are trying to be more responsive to the sort of lives that people live now. And uh, rather than the sort of old standards of just going to a health department or, or waiting for the, the news media to, to pay attention to things that had achieved a certain level of prominence, people can go out and they can get specific information. But there are also some strategies that, that people can take in terms of what we talk about is strategic decoupling, that in a time of uh, intensified global interactions, you don't always need to think of more inspections or, or more uh, food, greater connectivity in the global food system, but also looking at ways that you can look at farmers market, look for um, stores that, that pr support local farmers and do local produce. And maybe um, you can go to farmers markets. And the great things there is you can have conversations with the people that are growing the food. You can ask them about how they grow and things they're doing. And because they're so connected to their customer base, you know, there, there's some thought that they're maybe a little bit more responsive, that, that a recall or giving people food that gets them sick has a real immediate impact on them. And there are uh, all sorts of things like community-supported agriculture schemes where people buy in uh, a share of a farm and you eat whatever happens to be fresh that week. And a number of churches do this where people go in and um, people can either give money or in certain cases they can go and they can give time, they can volunteer a day of week to work for the farm. So it's a way to get access to, to local foods. And of course the variety of that changes uh, depending upon where you are here in California. We can get access to great foods at the farmer's market. Uh, you know, if you go to farmer's markets in New England this time of year, you're not seeing fresh lettuce or, or fresh fruits and vegetables. It's a lot of cans, uh, a lot of pickled things. Um, but there, there are some strategies people can take. A lot of it just comes down to, like a lot of security, like a lot of privacy issues, having to be a little bit more responsible and a little bit more vigilant about the things that you can do. Uh, you know, it, uh, gone are the days when people can think that a tomato is just a tomato. It matters where it comes from, how it's grown. And there are some standards that people can use um, and, and more information that's being provided to consumers that can help them make better decisions. You know, the reality is, though, is that consumers are so overwhelmed with information. I mean, just trying to buy, let's say, a new cell phone, <laughs> you have to do your research, or right. trying to buy a new TV, or if you have to go for every bit of food that you buy that's in your refrigerator, that is, I think, overwhelming. You know, for someone like you who's, you know, a researcher and you look at this thing, it makes sense. But I guess when you when you talk about the kinds of problems that we've had in the past few years, like the spinach issue, I mean, when that happened, I said, gosh, we should grow our own spinach in our yard. You know, I think it kind of is anti-globalization because it, you almost feel like, yeah, I should be growing my own food or I should be buying just from local people. So I, I'm worried that that might you know, interfere with the globalization. And I don't know, are you thinking that there might be some international laws or in international FDA that would set up standards so that we could feel safe buying? I love to buy sardines. I mean, can I not buy sardines anymore? 
Well, and I, and I think you, you bring up some great points. Um, you know, th there is this level of complexity. I have no idea about recommendations for cell phones for you because that's something <laughs> that I'm completely lost on myself. Um, but it is important for people to remember that, that overwhelmingly the food system provides safe and healthful food. Uh, that, that the odds, especially uh, thinking back even 100 years ago, people probably have far less problems than, than we would have had in the past. And there's a certain extent to which we have a lot, uh, much greater ability to connect, collect data and to look and understand when people get sick and, and why they're getting sick. Um, so th the main issues that, that you address is it really does highlight how important it is um, as, as a, a focus of the current administration seems to be, not this debate between big government or small government, but good government, and looking at especially things like food safety systems. It is very difficult for people to understand what is going on and, and to make really informed choices. Even people who make, um, who are very vigilant about food, with the, in the example of the peanut butter case, you wouldn't have known there was a problem until there was a problem. Uh, as, as one scholar in this area said, we are the canaries in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. And the detection strategy is when people get sick, then we say, don't eat that. And so, uh, you know, there, there are some real needs to, to look at our in inspection system. You know, we have this sort of, I mentioned before, this, this legacy of policies in the way they develop such that, you know, the USDA is responsible for some kinds of frozen pizza. The FDA is responsible for other kinds of frozen pizza to think about ingredients. And those are things almost like we had to do looking at homeland security after September 11th, that the threat landscape that we faced just meant that it's a complex task, it's difficult, the creation of some sort of unified food standards agency wouldn't be easy, and I'm not trying to say that, it, that it's something to be undertaken lightly, but we can see examples the European Union has done this to, to bring together some standardization to the, the food safety systems of, of all of their countries. And of course, many of those countries, with in Britain it was the experience with mad cow disease. Some of the, the low countries in Europe had their experiences with dairy contamination. So publics were much more responsive to those big changes, maybe in the wake of this peanut butter issue, we'll see the Americans a little bit more interested in being able to trust that the regulatory system is good, that we do have inspections. We, we have seen um, over the past decade the CDC and U.S. inspectors start to go more global, putting uh, processes in, in place, putting inspectors on the ground in countries outside the U.S. and being able to understand that if our food system is global, that we can't just wait for things to show up at our borders and start testing because we know that, that that's not a solution, that we need to be able to develop food systems. And we also need to be really willing to work. We've seen a great interest um, in the last few years as China has been implicated in some of these food scares that the Chinese government is very interested in working with us to set up the systems they need to so that we don't walk away from China, who's become a major export of the United States. They have no interest uh, in seeing us stop buying Chinese foods. And so they're really working with us to do the tests they need um, to establish the, the systems they need to so we can feel confident in those things. And there are also some actions, as you say, at the international level. There are a number of bodies. There's a commission called the, uh, the Codex Alimentarius Commission on International Food Standards. It's not something that receives a lot of attention. It's not like when we hear about the NATO meetings or the, the, the global climate change meetings, but it's a very important process, and it's, it's uh, one of those things that the U.S. could be engaging in much more strongly to look for global leadership on some of these issues. So there are actions. Uh, you know, a lot of the great activity has been going on at, at County health departments have been doing some great things in the last decades. So there, there are levels of government at all in all areas that we really need to be looking at what people can do. Because being a vigilant consumer is, is something you can say to people. It is something they can do. But there again, a lot of that vigilance is dependent upon the best information that's out there. And it's right. it's it, there are a lot of these threats. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we look at these from a security studies perspective. These are threats that impact states. These are things we don't talk about. Um, we didn't talk about the, the threat of nuclear proliferation during the Cold War by saying the best solution is for everyone to dig a bomb shelter. That was, that was a response. It was something that people talked about. There were the, you know, the old duck and cover drills in schools. But we never thought that that could replace deterrence and the, the high grand strategy level things that were being done to prevent a nuclear war from happening. So we need to think about that, that there's some strategies that things that people can do in their own lives, but there are also some very important roles where we need government functioning, functioning well and doing the things that it needs to be doing. Right. So in, in your uh, center here, the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs, how many people are really part of this CUSA? 
Well, as I, I said earlier, we're a hub of a global network, and we study networks. So we try to be innovative, not just in what we study, but how we do it. Uh, we have over 100 people around the globe that are involved in what we do. We ha do have a significant presence here in Orange County. We have an advisory board of 50 members that are business leaders, first responders, uh, members of nonprofit organizations. Uh, we have about 40 faculty affiliates here on the campus that, based upon the area of expertise, um, we can draw on. Uh, we have done projects in the past on biological weapons that we worked with UCI's Center for Virus Research on. Uh, we have a, a project right now that's a multidisciplinary study of American attitudes to threats using the case of terrorism that we're working with some, uh, a team of psychologists here at UCI on. Um, and then we have another 20 or 25 graduate student affiliates and undergraduate affiliates who work with us on specific research projects. So um, well over 100 people that are involved in the center and we tend to be project-based. Uh, we, we try to actively involve people so our members are, are getting engaged in, in some parts of what we do. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's exciting and it's one of the great things about technology is we're able to actively involve people in ways for, for relatively low cost um, that you, you would have had to spend a lot of time flying around the world uh, even just a decade ago. Right. What, are, what, are you, what are some of your current projects that you're working on? We have a couple of, of major projects that we're, we're working on right now that I'm involved in. Um, one of them, I think you mentioned in, in the introduction, is we the center has a series of edited volumes that we're doing with scholars. Our first one was on landmines that came out in 2004. Uh, was a great book. We have a, a volume that was just completed with MIT Press on the links between environmental change and security. And that's something we're paying, seeing a lot more attention paid to is not just climate change at a, the global level, but the way that, that changes uh, impact uh, in environmental change and, and environmental variabilities in local levels. We're seeing, you know, the impact of the dr continuing drought on agriculture in California, warning today from the Secretary of Energy that we may not have agriculture in California at the end of the century if the it, impacts of climate change go on. And uh, we see that environmental changes are affecting security in all sorts of ways, changing the range of diseases, um, increasing the frequency of natural disasters. So the book has a case study of Hurricane Katrina and the impact on, on New Orleans. Um, we have a, another book in that series that we're preparing that looks at women and the particular set of security challenges that women face in this environment. Um, so that's uh, one of our main issues is uh, we're a UC center. Uh, we, we try to, one of our main focus areas is research. That's one of the things the university is very interested in. So we, we try to focus on, on doing high quality academic research that does bring in participants from the developing world, uh, non-traditional participants. We had uh, military officers, former military officers in our landmine book doing pro and con. Do we need landmines to protect our forces? So we, tr we try to make the books um, speak to uh, the, the challenges at hand and bring in the expertise we need. Uh, we have a project that we've been working on on the challenges of peace building and post-conflict reconstruction, and especially the need to factor in environmental issues. We've been working uh, with a group of international experts convened by the United Nations Environment Program on that for a couple of years, looking at some of the particularly hard places in the world, places like the Central Africa and, and Congo and uh, Rwanda, other parts of of Africa and other conflicts that have been going on in, in countries that have been cycles of conflicts over years and the way that environmental issues and natural resource issues are often very important parts of the conflict but they're not the things that that get dealt with in this sort of official peace building process. We can think of, you know, there, there are always analogies to the experience we've gone through in Iraq that when we went in after the, the fall of Baghdad there, the notion was have elections, get the police on the street, get the stock market going. But environmental issues run the gamut from trash collection and clean water. They're really things that, that demonstrate to people that things are getting better, that they should believe in the government, that they shouldn't take up arms again, that they couldn't get a better deal if they, they went back and, and started the conflict cycle. So that project is, is really trying to bring together some of the evidence that's existed over the past few decades and, and synthesize it to make the argument for why you need to in involve environment, natural resources, and, and then, of course, how you do it. It's one thing to say you should do it, but when you're working with a policy community, they're looking for specific toolkits. So we're also trying to design the toolkit that people could go in to a post-conflict situation and, and look and figure out how environmental issues impact that conflict and how they can apply them to peace building. Because in some cases, those things can be used, um, whether it's rebuilding water systems or developing uh, 
erosion control ditches to help agricultural systems be more resistant to flooding and, and cha changes that are expected from climate change, they can be a way to help build trust between people in post-conflict settings. Um, we also have a set of, of projects focused on the particular challenges of climate change adaptation. If we look at what's going to happen and what's expected to happen with climate change, how do we pe help people adapt to deal with it? And what are the ways that we can bring in things like microfinance and microcredit loans, small loans between 5 and $50 that have been incredibly successful in some places with poverty alleviation? Can we use those sorts of tools to fund climate change adaptation? It's a, it's a very new area of research. We've just started publishing some of the results of our early work that it shows it's pretty optimistic that you can help people develop uh, agricultural systems, small gardens, things that can boost their income but can also be resistant to climate change. Um, and then we have a, a project I, I mentioned in passing that is a, a project funded by the National Science Foundation that's a multidisciplinary team of psychologists, political scientists here and at Georgetown University that does a survey of Americans every year to look at how they're actually responding to the turbulence, the threats we face. You know, are our people how concerned are people about terrorism? How, where do they rate these challenges? Do they feel optimistic about the future? Are they concerned for their family's safety? Um, the, that's been a really exciting project, uh, especially over the last couple of years, where we started to see some things um, where the American people are a little bit more resilient um, and a little bit less concerned with things. When, when some of the claims were being made a few years ago that everybody was concerned about terrorism, that everybody was afraid of terrorism, we found that very, very small numbers of people were actually psychologically experiencing, you know, what do we mean by being afraid? Is it, do you think about it, or does it mean that you really are having deep, real psychological impacts from it? We found very small numbers of people were concerned about that. We also started to see that people were worried about the economy a little bit earlier than it showed up in the political discourse. And so it's exciting to be doing this research that has a chance to go out and talk to. It's a, a nationally representative sample of Americans. We do this uh, a web-based method, so people that don't have internet access are provided it. So we know we're getting a good snapshot of America. We kind of refer to as a, a portrait of America in turbulent times. Um, and that, so that's a really exciting research project that we have going on. So is there a place that we can see some of this research? Is it, is it online at UCI on, on your own website? Sure. We, we try to put a lot of our information online. Um, it's at our center's website, and the, the URL for that is www.cusa.uci.edu. Um, and we try to put as much information as we can about our research projects and uh, also upcoming events and briefings. We host a number of activities here in Orange County that are always open to the public, and people are welcome to t attend and take part in. You know, when I was reading your web website and I was looking at the, um, the nexus between the environment change, the environmental changes and conflict, I thought that was really interesting. You know, you don't really think about the environment causing conflict when the weather changes and people don't have enough to eat, like the drought. Right. You know, then everybody is just starving and fighting for the food or if the water is destroyed or anything. I thought that was really fascinating to, to see that kind of nexus. So what do you propose when you have that kind of an issue? Well, it, it's one of the things that we, we need to do a lot of research on because when you start looking at conflicts, often there are issues where, um, you know, people look for what, what was the big cause? Was it ethnic violence? Was it a religious tension? Um, and one of the things that we find with environmental issues is they're sort of underlying stressors. Um, they're making it more difficult. Whether you look at the, the conflict that's going on in the, the Darfur region, of Sudan, where you, you've got sort of a conflict between one group of people that, that maybe happen to be farmers and another group that happen to be herders. And with, with spreading drought, the herders are having to encroach into the farmlands. So if you look a little bit deeper in a lot of these conflicts, we're also concerned because if you look at a lot of parts of the world where there's a lot of tension right now, places like South Asia, where there's, there's this sort of ongoing tension between India and Pakistan, ongoing concern about Pakistan and its stability. These are also places that we're, we're starting to, to learn are going to experience severe water stress. They're places that already don't have enough fresh water. They're places that are dependent in, in some cases on the monsoon cycles for their agricultural systems or their fishing. And as monsoon cycles are changing, a lot of these things that we may take for granted, that snow comes in the winter, that it melts and you can get water out of the river. When that changes, we think that these things could really um, provide a real 
uh, sort of aggravating circumstances to existing conflicts, but also to things, situations that are fairly tense, and especially in some place like South Asia, where you have nuclear powers with a history of conflict, it's not some place that you really want to sort of dump more uh, you know, gasoline on the fire and see if that makes it better. So that really, one of the, the key themes that emerges from a lot of our work is the importance of sustainability. Uh, that if we're talking about security issues, um, we, we see, and this is part of our focus from an unconventional perspective, that often there's a lot of focus on the military side of security or the diplomatic side of security. But, the, but peace and stability in societies depends on building stable societies where people have sustainable uh, livelihoods, and that's sustainable both in the way that businesses talk about it, that you, you can count on, that your income is there, that the company you're working for, the school you're working for, the, the government agency you work for is going to be there next year so you can do long-term planning, you have an incentive to buy property, to improve it, all the things that we think about here in America that lead to a stable country. Um, but also sustainability from the environmental perspective, that, that we really see a need that there are many, many people in the world today that are dramatically overpaying for clean water, for energy, for food. There's a lot of business opportunities there. There, there are a lot of basic needs that people, that, that a lot of our, our that, you know, there, there are problems that our best engineers can be thinking about, that our best students can be thinking about. And so sustainability is one of the things that emerges, uh, interestingly enough, as a security response, that if we can figure out how people can have more sustainable access to water, to food, to energy, that that can be not not the whole answer to the problem. We're never suggesting that when you, you've got ethnic tensions or religious conflicts. Of course, that's important too. But if, if we can help people have sustainable livelihoods, um, there, there are also other things we find in places like South Asia and Africa, um, things that you as an attorney would appreciate, things like property rights um, and access to uh, systems to, for people to adjudicate disputes that they can trust in, you know, functioning legal systems where they can take problems so they don't have to um, resort to violence as, a, as the only real way they can try and settle a land tenure dispute. So these are all kind of sort of non-traditional solutions that are really important important part of security. And of course, this is something that we in America are much more um, attuned to after the last few years that we've seen what was necessary to start making progress uh, towards a more stable Iraq, the, the sort of things that we're looking at in Afghanistan, what we really need to do to, to help improve the security situation there. Yes, it's going to require more combat troops. Yes, it's going to require using combat forces in different sort of ways. But it's also really going to figure out ways to help improve people's livelihoods in sustainable factions. We also have to worry about, worry about sustainable um, yeah, sustainability here in our own country right now with people being laid off and, you know, businesses going out of business. I mean, the same issues are hitting us, and, of course, it's going to exacerbate what's happening in the rest of the world. We're speaking right now with Dr. Brian McDonald, who is the assistant director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs right here at the University of California, Irvine. You know, we're sitting on the campus here, and this uh, radio station is right here. So what do you say to somebody who thinks, well, gee, you know, they're a student, they're listening in, and they say, gosh, how do I get into that? And what kind of money could I make if I actually do get into that? Well, we, we offer a, a number of activities. We've talked a little bit about our research activities. A whole other aspect of what we focus on is education. Um, and that, that's one of our core areas. We do the sort of formal things like courses. The center has uh, developed a two-quarter sequence on sustainability that looks at sustainability from a, a range of indicators, brings in guest speakers to talk about designing sustainable buildings and the, the sort of job opportunities there. Um, and it, the course allows students a chance to really, since it's a two-quarter sequence, it gives them a 20-week period that they can really get a depth of knowledge on these things, which we think is, you know, sustainability is sort of one of the buzzwords right now. It's one of the bright spots, whether it's uh, reinforcing buildings and helping them be more energy efficient in homes or installing uh, solar panels. Uh, you know, that we see that as a real bright spot in the economy, and it's a good set of activities for people wherever, whatever sector they see themselves going into. It's a good skill set. Um, we also have a graduate course that we developed uh, with the responder community here in Orange County and in LA. That's an urban security course that looks at the particular sets of challenges uh, that cities face today. And it's a, a graduate course primarily intended for students in planning programs and policy programs, but it, it may be of interest to students in, in other disciplines because cities are 
you know, they face a particular set of security challenges. They always have. And the, the old way for cities to handle these things was they solved them through, through geography. They, you know, built on islands or they built on, on high hills. They built fortifications. And we think about these things as sort of quaint if you go to, to um, you know, Edinburgh and you see the walled castles in Scotland. But you forget that they served a very real function. Uh, it wasn't fun to build big walls and maintain them. Uh, and people are doing that to protect them. But today's cities can't build walls. They can't limit access in the same ways. They're dependent on free flows of people and goods uh, and information, and that opens them up to whole new sets of vulnerabilities. And so the course tries to expose students to some of these things, from water to power, to the way that urban design can can encourage gang activity and create crime problems. through guest speakers, we bring in police officers, we bring in engineers from the P- Department of Water and Power and the Water District. Um, we take them on field trips. We took them uh, one year. We took people to the L.A. Long Beach port to give them some idea of the vast scale of that port system and trying to secure it. And you know, why does it? Why can you not think about opening and inspecting every box and every container and and helping them sort of really get exposed to the real dimensions of security challenges. Then the third main thing that we do is that um, through the support of some uh, very generous donors here in Orange County, we offer graduate fellowships every year to help students undertake original field research uh, on pressing security challenges. We've had people look at post-conflict reconciliation in Rwanda on uh, governance and adaptation issues in small island states, states that are really facing the possibility they may be underwater in 50 years, and what do you do about that? Um, so far, we've had 11 students go out to countries like Rwanda, Costa Rica, Brazil, Israel. Um, and right now, we're in the process of selecting our fourth class of fellows we'll announce later this spring. So there are a lot of ways that people can, uh, students at UCI can get involved, attending our events, um, uh, you know, taking part in some of the courses are the, the, most, the easiest ones to access. So what do you get a degree in, social ecology, or exactly what is the degree? Well, we are a campus center, and so we have affiliates, and we work with students from all across the campus. We've had fellows from social ecology and social sciences, but also fellows from information and computer science um, and, and other parts of the campus. And uh, our, elect, our courses usually are broad enough they can fulfill those sort of core curriculum requirements that people are always trying to fill. Um, so we, we really do try to work with students because we, we find that our, the, the twin themes that guide us are security and sustainability, and those are necessarily multidisciplinary problems. They, they have applicability to law students, to business people, to uh, people that want to be first responders, healthcare. to healthcare, absolutely, to medicine. Um, and, and so it's not, we're not just sort of dealing with the traditional political science students or public policy students, but we're really trying to, to draw in a broad, we're tr- you know, we, we work with some students in art and uh, in, in the humanities, so we're trying to help bring in a whole range of students and a whole range of perspectives, because this isn't a small problem that one group of people is going to deal with. This really is sort of a, a society-wide challenge, and we really want to encourage, you know, these, these are problems that we shouldn't think that the solution to the energy crisis is solar or wind or things that people thought up 30 years ago. I mean, there are people out there that are that are going to have the great big idea, and we're hopefully can you know some of them will be cultivated here at UC Irvine. Right. So, what do you teach? You you do you teach here yourself? What what classes do you teach? Uh, I've taught some courses on um, in, environmental politics uh, and sort of global environmental issues are the ones that I normally have taught, which is, again, these sort of survey-level courses that deal with the problem of, of sort of exposing people to the range of problems um, in, in a hopeful and optimistic way. You know, we don't want somebody to come out of a course and just go, man, everything's, everything's terrible. I just want to make a lot of money and drive a really nice car. Um, we, want, we want people to sort of see that there, there are all sorts of opportunities to get involved, that whatever their interests are, there, there are sets of challenges out there. Um, and there are opportunities for them to, to get involved and make a contribution. As you said, whether, you know, whether it's healthcare, I mean, if somebody's going to go to medical school, there's all sorts of interest in things like alternative medicine, but also in the sustainability of healthcare. I mean, that's, that's a major industry that's looking at ways it can cut costs and improve service. Um, so uh, those are the, the sort of things that I've taught. So I, I worry a little bit about bioterrorism. It, what have you all done about that? Anything? Sure. I mean, bioterrorism is something that that we know there's a lot of concern about. Um, we have done a, a number of activities. We one of the first things we did when we started in 2003, 2004 was a speaker series on the changing threat of bioterrorism and and biological weapons challenges. 
um, given changes in technology and advancements in medicine. I mean, some of the things that we can think about doing and some of the research that's being done on this campus right now are fantastic to think about the medical advances that are going on. Of course, there's always a dark side to those things. And as we've learned more in the last few decades about the things that the Soviet weapons biological, the Soviet Union's biological weapons program was able to do, a covert program, not a lot of knowledge. When one of the key scientists involved in it defected and started being debriefed by U.S. scientists, they thought he was making things up because of the, the technological sophistication they'd done. And, and we are concerned, you know, there, there's great worry now um, about the ability of, of people to you know, get a genetic engineering kit, and you're, the things that people are doing now in high school science classes, what will that do? Um, at the same time, we saw in the experience of the anthrax incidents of 2001, the great difficulty in investigating these things, that the, the forensic tools we need, that you need sort of multidisciplinary education between fire agencies and police agencies so everybody understands the different kinds of evidence you might need. Um, and that, that means there's a whole range of things we have to do in sort of detection systems and training systems and disciplines um, like hazardous materials units and police departments are very different now. They're facing a very different set of challenges than they were a decade ago and that requires new training and it requires different kinds of people coming into them. Um, we also see that this is something that, that has a lot of impact on businesses that may deal. Um, maybe they're, they're, they produce materials that could have some sort of uh, uh, cause a danger to people, so they have very different concerns about security. They need to make sure that people aren't getting access to them and that they're not using them in, in unintended ways. But we also try to, um, a lot of our work is we, we don't want to have too much of a focus on sort of the dangers of bioterrorism that we forget about the very real threats from natural infectious diseases out there. Things, there's a continuing worry about pandemic influenza and things like bird flu, which received a lot of attention uh, in 2005, but it's been off the radar for a few years. Um, but we, we still see there's, there's concern. It is reemerging this year in China with human cases and spreading in Asia. Um, so diseases like uh, HIV um, and the continual spread of things like malaria. So th these are, we really try to talk about sort of biological security because it's not just biological weapons and biological terrorism, but it's infectious diseases, it's global health threats. And what are the ways we can look for solutions that improve resilience, improve preparedness, uh, improve public health performance across the board so that we're not investing a lot of energy, a lot of resources, especially these days when uh, it's not the, the period we were in after the 2001 attacks where it seemed like the cookie jar was endless and everybody could get funding for everything they needed. But we really now need to look for ways to improve the performance of the medical system, the public health system, so they're, they're better trained, better prepared to deal with bioterrorism, but they're also better able to deal with the daily threats that they, they see, the daily problems. I noticed on your website that you have this human, uh, human security award. That sounded really interesting. Uh, Tell us about that award and some of the past recipients. Sure. Uh, when we started, one of the major aspects of our research is on human security. I mentioned we have this edited volume on human security, and it was uh, it's a term that's relatively well-known in, in Canada uh, and, and some of the other parts of the world, um, but less well-known in the United States. We were looking for a way to sort of publicize the idea of human security, and that is human security threats are things that impact the, the safety of individuals and communities in their daily lives. They're things like economic security, food security, health security. Um, they're very important to the, the quality of life that people live and the safety that they experience. So we started this Human Security Award in 2004. Our first recipient was Heather Mills uh, for her work on landmines and on behalf of disabled people around the world. And in 2005, we gave it to Zainab Salbi, who's uh, a woman who started a fantastic organization called Women for Women, which helps women survivors of war and conflict. 2006, we gave it to Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire, who was the commander of the UN forces in Rwanda at the time of the genocide. And it was just a, I mean, a hero does not describe the, who he is and what he went through both in, in the time of the Rwandan genocide and, and personally and psychologically in the aftermath of, of what he was not able to stop. Um, and someone who's thought deeply about humanitarian crisis, about genocide, about our obligations to those things. Uh, in 2007, we gave it to a gentleman named David Bornstein, who's written, done a lot to publicize social entrepreneurship, or this idea that we can use business models and business standards to achieve social ends. Um, and this year, 
Last fall, we gave it to a, a great group from San Diego called Invisible Children, who are three young filmmakers who have started a fantastic set of programs to connect American youth with uh, helping young people through developing and funding schools and teachers in Uganda deal with the consequences of that decades-long civil war. So we really look for people that are addressing pressing challenges, that are entrepreneurial, that are sort of doing something to address a challenge that many people feel like it's such so big or you, you can't even dig in. And they're, they're great examples of, of the human spirit and of ways that individual people can, can do things that make a real difference in people's lives. So if someone listening to this is interested in that award, how do they find out about it? There's a lot of information about that award on our website, which again is cusa.uci.edu, information about the past award recipients, and then as we select our recipient for this year, we'll, we'll get some information up there, and that, that's a great event that we have uh, here on the campus every fall, usually in October, that's open to the public, and just some amazing uh, speeches that people have given as they accept the award. Hmm. So what are some of the qualifications? You know, this is the kind of thing that you don't read about too much in the paper, and that should be publicized, all the good stuff. But what are some of the qualifications for the award? Well, you're right. It's one of the things that really is distinguishing UC Irvine as one of the few places in the United States that, that recognizes human security and offers a human security award. And the center is really pleased to be able to work with the campus. They've been so supportive of us over the years in, in creating an award. It's not an easy thing to do and, and promoting it. Um, we tend to look for people who have done important things um, but maybe have not received a lot of attention. You know, there are a number of vehicles out there uh, that, that people get recognized through Nobel Peace Prizes and things like that. And it's great to hear the, the former winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. What we're really trying to do is the people who are sort of maybe a little bit below that radar. They haven't re received international recognition yet, but they've got great groups. In the case of Invisible Children, they, they've got and they've done a good film that they've released themselves. They're about to release a major motion picture. They're going to be getting a lot more attention in the next few years. Um, Heather Mills had done great work on landmines, especially sort of stepping in to become the patron of Adopt a Minefield after Princess Diana's mm -hmm. unfortunate death. Um, so we really try to look for people that maybe aren't household names, uh, which is a bit of a challenge when you're trying to publicize it and get people excited about it. Yes. But we find that it really works because you, you get people who are deeply committed to what they're doing. And when people come to the events, we get great response from, from all sorts of, of people in Orange County, whether they're business leaders or philanthropists uh, or high school students. We find that a really great response. We'll have to have one of your award winners on our show, too. That would be great. Absolutely. How about some of the public service activities that you've done in, in uh, improving preparedness right here in Orange County? Sure. One of the, the features that the, the center is trying to do is we take our we do a lot of academic research, but we really try to work to translate that into findings that are immediately useful, provide that immediate value to uh, someone from a, a business who's coming in and sitting in one of our seminars. We've done events on school safety and preparedness planning that we worked with the Orange County Department of Education, the Orange County Sheriff's Department to put on for um, PTA groups and teachers to help them sort of increase the sophistication in their school safety planning. We did an event on um, pandemic influenza planning and business preparedness planning that was uh, a lot of fun. We worked with the Orange, uh, with the uh, U.S. Marine Forces Pacific and talked about the marine planning process that the Marine Corps uses. So they have a standard process to deal with different threats. So you're not having to sort of reinvent the wheel uh, every time. And we were able to bring the commanding general in Marine Forces Pacific at the time, Chip Gregson here, um, to talk about that process and the value of sort of training your team on, on a standardized process. So whatever, you can deal with a threat to your business, but you're not having to start over and learn a new planning process. And then we do a, a series of briefings on, on topical issues. Um, we had a, a great program last year with Dr. Carl Schultz, who's in emergency medicine here at UCI in the medical school. And he talked about sort of the, the things that people can do to prepare themselves and, and especially prepare businesses. We know that, you know, we live in earthquake country and the, the state's always trying to encourage people to, to get, have their water, have their food, have the, the flashlight and the emergency radio. And that's great. And people should absolutely do that. But we also know that people don't do that. And so as an employer, as if you run a large hospital or part of an organization, you're dealing with the challenge that when something happens, you need your team to come into work. You need people to show up and do what they're supposed to do. You can have a great plan, but if nobody shows up to execute it, the plan's going to be less effective. So, we, you know, trying to help people understand what are the things they can do. And some of them are things that people may think of, like having a daycare facility so people can bring in their children. Some of the things people may not think of, like pet care, 
turns out to be really important in the case of an earthquake. If your home's not structural, maybe you don't want to leave home because you're worried about your cat or your dog. So if you could bring that into work, is sort of odd as it may sound. Other things like being able to, if you have warehouse, if you have storage facilities, maybe you can give people food and water at the end of the day, or you can pay them in cash so they can go out and get things. But so we, we try to do a range of public service activities. Um, in addition to having speakers that are just promoting global awareness on issues, we've had a great set of speakers, um, people from the Army War College talking about the role of the military and how that's changing and sort of disaster response and, and preparedness, but also things, tangible things that people can sort of walk out. You know, one of the old adages of going to these seminars and training is if you don't come out with something you can do that day, it's just going to go on the pile on your desk and you're not going to get to it. So we really want something, people to get exposed to things that they can, they can tangible things they can take away and get that immediate benefit to their, themselves and their organization. Do you have on the website, I don't think I saw anything like this, but do you have an, anything like the checklists that you prepared? Are they on your website for businesses on how to prepare for an emergency like a tsunami or like an earthquake or something like that? Do you have that available? Absolutely. We have some sort of general emergency preparedness guidelines. We have some links to some more specific challenges um, like infectious diseases or pandemic influenza preparedness and also links to sites like the Red Cross um, and ready.gov. There's some developed some really good sites out there. Um, and they're also one of the things we try to do is, is help encourage people to think not just about the, the, the planning and the stockpiling, but also the sort of training they might be interested in taking. There's some great opportunities now. Um, community emergency response team, professional reserve forms for law enforcement agencies. They're groups that will give you training. If you're willing to show up and, and put in the, the night a week for eight weeks or 10 weeks, um, or that you know there, there's much more advanced things if people want to become volunteer paramedics or get involved with a, a fire department, there are great opportunities there. And that, that's good um, training and, and very useful. You know, One of the things that we talk a lot about and we see in our research is that time and again when events happen, the first responders are the people who are on scene. And if you have events where people have medical training, maybe it's a Boy Scout who got a first aid merit badge. Maybe it's a, somebody who is a, a lifeguard or a teacher who is in the military. But the, the more people in our society who are ready, who are prepared, who know what to do in the event of a crisis, the better off we're going to be. We can't just assume that when something happens, you can call and the response agencies that are going to come. We're blessed with great agencies, great response groups here, but they can't be everywhere at once, especially in the case of major events. We know when the big earthquake happens that it, it could take days, it could take weeks. I mean, we see that every time there are these bad ice storms back east. We don't have to deal with, with blizzards or ice storms, but we do see things where people really are needing to, to take responsibility and, and do the, do the tr get the training, do the preparedness for their homes and their families. I have to tell you, Lloyd and I took the CERT training. Okay. The eight weeks, you know, I'm, I'm a sheriff reserve uh, professional services, so we took it, and it was fantastic. And I want to tell you something. I learned to put out a fire, and I never knew that a fire extinguisher only lasted about 30 seconds. And the very, and the very next day, I had to use one, basically. So, I mean, it was just pretty amazing that I learned it and just the next day needed to do it. So it is really important. I think it was great, and I do encourage anybody. You can take it. I think Red Cross may be they teaching do, it as well. Do. And I know that even in Newport Beach, they offer the training through the public library. There's a big banner that hangs on, on the library there. So there are a lot of resources out there for people. And right, and we learned that the soonest anybody would come to you would be like 72 hours. So if you learn the training, you can help yourself, your family, and your neighbors. Well, you're doing a terrific job in this department. That is great. So give us your website again and give, leave us with something positive. Sure. The, the website again is www.cusa.uci.edu. Um, and something positive, I would just say that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about when things go wrong and in parts of the world and in a lot of war-torn societies where we do field work. But the, the more work we do, the more optimistic we find. And the number of people involved with us are just really optimistic at people's ability to recover and, and dig in and try to make their lives better. And when you meet people uh, in, in refugee camps in Africa that are just really trying to make their lives better, it really shows there are opportunities there. And part of what we try to do is to marry the capacity, the energy that's here in the United States with the real opportunities are out there to, to make the world a better place. Well, we're happy to have you, and we're happy to have this whole center right on the campus, and I hope that students who are listening here will take a look at the website and consider getting involved and taking your course. Are you going to be teaching next uh, next term? 
the next cycle of our courses is actually going to be in the winter and spring of 2010. So it'll be next year. Yeah, it's winter and spring next year. And uh, thanks very much. It's a great chance to talk to you. You've been listening to Dr. Brian McDonald, who is the Assistant Director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. And you can even take one of his courses in 2010, but you can go to the website at www.socialecology.uci.edu slash C-U-S-A. And thank you for joining us. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. You can join us every Wednesday right here from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on Privacy Piracy. Also, go to our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, Listen to archived interviews and write us emails about what you want to know about privacy in the information age. Thank you, and thank you, Lloyd, and thank you, Dr. McDonald. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.